This minimalist wants more. Enoughism is about having enough already. It's a movement to transform modern perceptions of mindfulness and meditation. For more on my personal journey, follow me online at I am Enoughism. Hello and welcome to Enoughism. Today on episode four, we're exploring a Harvard medical professor's definition of minimalism and resilience. I'm joined today by Dr. Gail Gazelle. Hi, Gail. Hi there. So Gail, you work at Harvard Medical School as assistant professor of medicine. You are a former hospice physician and a certified mindfulness teacher. You have coached over 500 physicians as part of your experience, helping them manage the stressors of their jobs and manage feeling burnt out. And you also have a new book, and I love this title. It is called Everyday Resilience, A Practical Guide to Build Inner Strength and Weather Life's Challenges. That's like a poem in itself. <laughs> <laughs> so we all need more everyday resilience in our lives. So on that note, what is resilience to you and how can people live with resiliency on an ongoing basis? Thanks for starting there. Yeah, we really all need resilience, don't we? And what it is, is the ability to weather whatever challenges come in our path and do so not just without going under, but actually with thriving and getting stronger and more wise in the process. You know, we think about that willow tree bending and not breaking, or sometimes we think about the rubber band bouncing back. So it's that ability to kind of weather whatever storms come our way, whether that's the pandemic of 2020, whether it's a difficult relationship, whether it's complexities in our workplace, whether it's an illness, all of the things that affect all of us, we all experience adversity. And one of the things that I really believe is that we all have resilience deep within us. In fact, that it's an inner well of strengths and resources and wisdom and goodness that we're all born with. And yet, we don't always learn how to access it. And in fact, I think for many of us, the well almost gets paved over by societal expectations, by the complexities, by uh, the too much stuff that you often talk about. How do we become more resilient? There are a lot of different ways. There isn't one cookbook recipe that we'll all follow, but there are three things that I think are particularly important. And the first one of those has to do with mindfulness, which I spend a lot of time on in my book, because we need to get to know our own habits of mind. We need to understand how our own mind works. And we can be very derailed by our own thoughts, thoughts of inadequacies, dwelling on things that we don't think are going well. So mindfulness helps us to pay attention and get to know our own internal narratives, our own thoughts, and decide which ones we want to really give attention to and which we don't. Similarly, the second thing that I, I think is really critical for developing resilience is um, the, the awareness that what we focus on becomes our reality. If we focus on what's going well, our own strengths, our own capacities, we actually build our ability to see those positive elements in our own lives. And so much of that has to do with what we understand about the human brain and the human brain being malleable and that where we put our energies and what we focus on can actually help us grow more of those positive traits. 
The third thing is the fact that we have many choice points in our lives and we all have challenges and adversities and many of these are beyond our control. But what's really important about resilience is realizing the choices that we have in everyday life so that far from being a passive endurance of life's difficulties and tribulations, resilience is really an active process that we can choose to engage with. And so mindfulness thinking about where we focus and how that becomes our reality. And then this intense awareness of the choices that we have and focusing our energies on the things we can control as opposed to the things we can't. I see those as really the three major cornerstones of building our resilience. Yes. And as a way to promote resilience, especially it's not just one storm in people's lives, it's Mm. often storm after storm. Yes. One key tool or technique is through the art of minimalism. So talk a little bit about how that works as a strategy. Yeah, that's a really important strategy. And I'm so delighted that you have this whole podcast and, you know, all the work that you're doing around minimalism, because let's face it, in modern Western culture, there are so many options, so many things we can buy. We can go to the supermarket and there are myriad choices in every aisle that we go to. We have all these social media outlets. It's really all too much. I think many people in Western society are overwhelmed by the plethora of decisions and choices, it can actually erode our confidence in our ability to make decisions for ourselves. Because in many of these, in terms of our purchasing power, the differences are so subtle, the differences are relatively unimportant. And yet with all of these decisions, all of this complexity, we lose our confidence in our ability to choose and our ability to know at our core what is right for us. With resilience, we develop that core strength, that core authenticity really relying on our own values, what we know deep in our bones is right for us in this world, in this one precious life that we get to lead. And with resilience, we can step away from all those choices and really kind of put a line in the sand and say, you know, this is what's important to me. There's all that noise out there, you know, with social media, with buying and with choices and in all its very, very many forms. But I can step away from that. I can realize that that's not really where I need to be putting my energies. So that's, that's what I see as kind of the synergy between minimalism and resilience is stepping out of the fray, the fray of too many options in Western society, right? And, and realizing these things are not even all that important. They're not at the heart of what is sustaining for me. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna see that more clearly. I'm gonna step out of the societal shoulds about what I should own and the kind of house I should live in, the kind of car I should drive, the kind of partner I should mate with, all of these external pressures and really looking more deeply inside at that well of resilience and and asking what's most important to me. Yes, it's a disconnect between what you think you should do and what you want to do. And you're constantly fighting that throughout your life, Mm -hmm. doing what society, quote unquote, thinks you should do. And (laughs) it's more about minimalism of the mind and taking away, like you said, that noise so that what remains is your own voice, not the voice of other people, many of whom you have never or will meet in your lives. They're just constructs. (laughs) That's really true. 
And it, it's really erosive, isn't it? Erosive to our sense of ourselves, our sense of meaning and purpose, our sense of the relationships that are so deeply important in our lives. So I, I am, as I said, I'm so thrilled with your approach because it, it is at the heart of resilience to step away from all of those distractions from who we truly are in the world and what's really, truly most meaningful to us. Yes. And I know just from reading various spiritual teachers like Eckhart Tolle, for example, another book called The Untethered Soul, the primary question is, who is the person thinking the thoughts that you're thinking? Mm -hmm. Is it you? Is it someone else? It's that inner critic that erodes our mind. It's that inner critic that tears us down. It's invisible. It doesn't exist physically, but it exists very much so in our mind. How do you deal with that? Because that's essentially the key to clearing out your mental energy and having what remains be what serves you and what puts you on that path to living a life where you're serving a purpose and that purpose aligns with what you enjoy and what brings you happiness. I couldn't agree more. Our minds are such incredibly busy places, aren't they? It's estimated that we have 20,000 to 50,000 thoughts a day, maybe even 75,000. That's a lot of thoughts. And many of them are purposeful. Get out of bed, get dressed, move your car away, you know, from that truck that's on, on, on the, uh, that's on the side of the highway. Obviously, the thinking mind is so important. And yet the thinking mind gets us into trouble. Many of the thoughts that we have are judgments. When we begin to pay attention to our thoughts with mindfulness, it can really be shocking what's going on there, that our mind is busy judging our circumstances, judging the people around us, and judging ourselves. And this construct of the inner critic, this internalized voice that most of us have, that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're a fake, we're an imposter, you always blow this, you know, that's what you're going to do, this demeaning voice that we internalize. And it's often the voice of parents, coaches, mentors, siblings, somebody who's been critical of us. And in our psyche, we learn to internalize it to the point that many people actually feel like it's their own voice, but it isn't. It's never our own voice. It's in something, it's a construct that we've internalized and we've kind of accepted this inner critic, almost like a harpy sitting on our shoulder, judging and evaluating and finding the flaws in everything that we're doing or saying. As you said, working with the inner critic is critically important to developing resilience, getting to know that it is simply a thought pattern. It's simply mental events, this voice that we're hearing. It's simply a pathway, frankly, in our brain that's been overactive and that we can take control of and quiet. With mindfulness, we develop this exquisite awareness of what our mind is up to. We can get to the point where we almost say to ourselves, wow, there's that negative voice again. There's my inner critic talking to me. And once we do that, we begin to see that choice point, that critical part of resilience. We realize I have a choice here. Sure, I can listen to that voice of negativity, that voice of criticism, but I also can put that aside. I can say to myself, that isn't the truth. Maybe it's a partial truth. Maybe in some ways I'm not as smart, as pretty, as good as, but it's not the whole truth. So we begin to resume that sense of agency, that really important agency that we have to choose and to choose how we interact with the thoughts that come across our mind. We can then ask ourselves, is this true? 
Is it 100% true? How do I even know if it's true or not? And very importantly, how do I feel when I'm experiencing this inner critical thought, really getting to know that dragged down sensation that I think most of your listeners can probably relate to that, that kind of, you know, it's almost a physical sensation. I don't know if you can relate, but this very downtrodden, you know, like somebody's wagging their finger at us and telling us how bad we've been. So important to get to know that because then we can replace it. We can refute it. We can say, so what did I do well there? What is the truth of my lived experience as opposed to this voice, this thought pattern? And how do I feel when I counter that message? Because oftentimes we feel better physically. There's a sense of expansion in the chest. There's a sense of standing taller. There's a sense of um, almost physical pride that we might experience. And we want to we wanna get to know that as well so that we really understand what's in it for ourselves to speak back this voice that somehow has gotten all this power in our mind, this power that it really does not deserve. I see this as such an important part of resilience that I it takes a lot of practice. Most of us are used to listening to that negative voice. We kind of take it as the truth, but it isn't the truth. It's not the truth for you, and it's not the truth for me. And we need to take back that agency. It's, it's a vitally important task. Yes, and it's a brave thing to change that narrative. Many people mm. go through their entire lives and yes. telling themselves things are not true about themselves. That's right. Do you have an example in your life about a narrative that you believed was true and you were able to flip-flop that and it's shifted your perspective and changed your outlook, not only about yourself, but with your relationship to the world around you and how you perceive life? Thank you for asking that. In my book, I touch on my own resilience journey. Like many people, I had a difficult childhood. My family uh, looked great on the outside. Middle-class family, well-educated parents, no drugs, no alcohol, but a lot of abuse. And my parents were wounded from their own childhoods and really I don't think it had access to resilience within themselves or how to develop it and strengthen it. And as a result, they repeated some of the destructive patterns from their own lives. As a result of the abuse, I internalized, just as children do, that there was something wrong with me, and that's why the abuse was happening. And this is what children do. We don't want to believe that our parents, our sole caretakers, are mistreating us. So we internalize and we take on the beliefs that somehow the bad things that our parents are doing to us is actually our fault. So for myself, I internalized a lot of shame around the abuse, uh, that there was something deeply defective about myself. And I lived with all kinds of messages about things being wrong with me, the way I walked, the way I talked, the way I looked, everything about myself. It was such a heavy burden that I carried really 24-7. And my own resilience journey was through mindfulness. It was through mindfulness that I was able to kind of see this shameful narrative for what it was, that it was something that I took on, but that really never, ever belonged to me. So much of my resilience journey was, one, 
getting to know my own mental pattern, because again, I wasn't even conscious of the shame that I experienced. Then too, as I said, beginning to work with it and realize I had a choice. I could believe that narrative, that there was something shameful about me, or I could work with that narrative. I could kind of right-size that narrative, and I could ask some of the questions that we've talked about. Is it true that there's something shameful about the way that I talk, about the way that I'm acting, about the way that I walk? And I really began to see it was a complete phony. There was nothing true about me being shameful. I was able to really get back in touch with my well of resilience and realize that it was a storyline that I had internalized. It wasn't really that hard to right-size the shame because once we take it out into the light of day, we take it out of the mental shadows that are going on behind the scenes of our awareness, we realize I can believe this story and be miserable, or I can shed this story. I can put it aside. I can remind myself of my own goodness, of my own strengths, of my own inner wisdom. That really freed me to see that as an abuse survivor, this is just the way, the way it looks, that we internalize it. But I have a choice, and I don't have to live that way. So that's, for me, writing this book, and frankly, in all the work that I do, it's helping people almost liberate themselves from the prison of these internalized messaging systems that are often highly inaccurate, and we don't have to live with them. And it's just, it gives me a lot of joy, obviously, to have done that in my own life, but to help people in all walks of life kind of realize that it's not the truth of who they are. That's, I almost feel like that's what I'm on this earth to do. Those are powerful words, especially where you say it's a choice. Mm -hmm. I think that alone is something many people would struggle with. I don't have a choice. This is my life. This is my narrative. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's so much of what we're talking about, about um, minimalization, <laughs> that we can get swept away by the norms of society, which have to do with capitalism and purchasing and more is better. Or we can realize it's not serving us all that well. It's taking us away from our authenticity, our voice, our purpose, our meaning, what's most deeply important to us. And we can then begin to reclaim those things. We can really just almost wake up from the trance of modern society and see more clearly what is deeply important to us. And again, that word kind of liberation, freedom, I think sometimes we can taste that and we want to get to know what it is, because once we get to know what it is, we want to have more of it. And then it helps us in an upward spiral to build those attributes in ourselves and to foster them in the people who are meaningful in our lives. Yes, and I think it's why some people become so attached to their belongings is because the version of who they are versus who they don't want to be or who they want to be is something they try to connect the dots with. Hmm. their belonging. Yeah, I, I suspect most of your listeners can relate to what you're saying. And again, it's almost like putting a physical hand over your own heart and saying, what's most important to me? I think if 2020 has shown us anything, it's the awareness that things can change very rapidly. There's a lot that's out of our control. It's even more pressing in a way for us to really stop and say, wow, I'm vulnerable. We're all vulnerable here. And how can I reconnect with what is most deeply important to me, the precious relationships that I have in my life? 
how can I spend more time on those and step away from all of those external things that we might get on Amazon or we might, you know, someone might think, oh, that's a great car, you're important. How can we step away from that to what's truly important for us? So I find sometimes just putting a hand on my heart and taking a few deep breaths settles me. It helps me return to myself, my true self. It helps me access my inner well of resilience. It helps me pause and step out of the busyness and the too muchness and realize, wow, I have enough. I am enough. I'm good enough. And that settles me, brings me back to what's truly important. So I, I want to recommend that to your listeners to take these pauses and to look inward and to really listen to that inner voice that may be small and may be underdeveloped. And yet over time, we can give it more space. We can give it more authority to right size and help us tune out all of these external societal messages. Yes, asking the question, am I enough? And that's why I call this show Enoughism. It's hmm. the art of, of figuring out what is enough. What does that mean? Yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful journey, isn't it? Yes. Well, Gail, 70,000 thoughts a day. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> I really appreciate it. You have a beautiful story. Thank you. Really a pleasure chatting with you today. Congratulations. You've made it to the end of Enoughism. For more information on my podcast, blog, and Amazon ebook, follow me on social media at I am Enoughism. Thanks for listening.